Today's guest is Dr. Gabriel Blass from the UK. Now, when I found out Dr. Gabriel does medical astrology and homeopathy, I begged him to come on the show because astrology is something I've always been fascinated by, although I don't know too much about it, but it's, I just always find it very intriguing. So to find that he combines these two was just very exciting for me, and I know that our listeners will love today's episode as well. Now, Dr. Gabriel graduated in pathology with honors in 1986 and in medicine with commendation from the University of Glasgow in 1988, and he has been involved in homeopathy since 1987 when he attended his first course as a medical student. He has been in practice in Glasgow prescribing solely homeopathic remedies since 1998. He has a keen interest in medical astrology and he has run numerous seminars on the subject for the last 14 years. In addition to his clinical practice, he has given many presentations in an attempt to disseminate an awareness of understanding of homeopathy to doctors, other healthcare professionals and the public, as well as being involved in student supervision and the translation of articles from Spanish-speaking homeopathic journals. So I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you want to continue the conversation, come and join us in the Homeopathy Hangout Facebook group if you haven't already. And uh, yeah, let us know what you think. Thanks for listening. Welcome to the Homeopathy Hangout, where we discuss all things homeopathy from around the world. And now my mum and your host, Eugenie Kruger. Hello, homies, and a very warm welcome to Homeopathy Hangouts. Today, we get to speak with somebody that I've been very excited to have on the podcast for a long time and trying to get him on, Dr. Gabriel Blass from the UK. Welcome. Thank you. Glad to be here. <laughs> it's so lovely to have you on, not just because of your lovely accent, but also because of some really interesting topics that we're going to be chatting about today. So, Gabriel, can you tell us a little bit about how you first were introduced to homeopathy and our story of how you were led to it? Okay. I wanted to do medicine from age five. I was very clear about that. God knows what are the subconscious drives <laughs> at that age that form your personality. But I was very interested in medicine since then. And I studied very hard through high school and university and got my degree. But in third year medicine, something wasn't right. I, I discovered that conventional medicine for me was missing something. Uh, on the physical level, the amount of work and intellect that was put in makes it absolutely brilliant. But it was missing something that I felt was more essential and it wasn't being captured at all because the remit of conventional medicine is very stringent but very rigid. And the analogy I like to use is that of this little story that uh, there's a man in the street looking for something during the night and he's under a lamppost in the street and someone comes along and says, what, what, what can I help you? What, what's the matter? He said, I lost my keys. And the guy says, eh, where did you lose your keys? Oh, in the garden. So why are you looking here? because the light is better. <laughs> and in a way, that's what conventional medicine does. It's very secure within its narrow remit. Mm. And there's a sense of intellectual safety. But the problem is that it misses the essence to a certain extent. And when I was in third year medicine, I felt the, the, the emotional, mental, 
and spiritual aspects are not being looked at all. Not that I knew that much about them, but it was a gut feeling that something was missing. So what happened was that we had to do a big essay, a big project. And in third year, I chose alternative medicine, which and with my tutors, that was very unpopular, but I decided mm -hmm. I wanted to do it anyway. And as part of that, I wanted to beef it up. So I did a survey at the Glasgow Homeopathic Hospital outpatients. And it was a very simple survey. I didn't know much about homeopathy, but it was one of the disciplines in alternative medicine. And uh, I wanted to learn a bit more about it. So it was a very sim simple question. It was age of the patient, how they felt about the treatment. That was essentially it. And 75% said they were satisfied. They're very satisfied with the treatment. And I don't think that's something you would find in any outpatient department in any other uh, conventional outpatients. So I thought, well, this I have to study. And... I put it on my to-do list, but I was obviously very busy at university. And then I was doing a student elective in Stranraer with a GP during the summer, which was something we had to do as part of the course. And he got this letter and he said, oh, what a load of rubbish. And he crumpled the letter and put it in the bin and I asked him, what was that? Oh, a course at the homeopathic hospital. And I said, do you mind if I retrieve this? I went into the bin, <laughs> I retrieved it and I thought, okay, I'm going to phone them up. I'd love to do this. And I was the first undergraduate to do the faculty of homeopathy weekend courses. At the uh, Glasgow at the homeopathic, homeopathic hospital. Yes. Oh, do you know and what? The more I had to make I had to make this vision board literally yesterday of my utopian world. And in that I was like looking for because my I want to have homeopathic hospitals in Australia. There used to be four, but it closed down in the 1940s. But the picture I found was the Glasgow Homeopathic Hospital on my vision board. Yeah. <laughs> That's so funny. But as the hospital, I'm too scared to ask, is it still around? It's been decimated. Oh. It had inpatient wards. They've been axed. It had a pharmacy oh. that's been axed. The number of uh, staff has been axed and it's de death by a, a thousand cuts. And all the other homeopathic hospitals, there were six or seven in Britain, they've closed down. We are in, in a very dark age relating mm. to homeopathy. And it's part of the same thing. It's the clash between a conventional point of view and a more holistic point of view. Mm. And so you were one of the first graduates that came uh, out of that. No, I was a, a medical student, uh -huh. okay. the first medical student. Yes. No, there were GPs and, and other doctors who had been yeah. doing the course for oh, years. Cool. But they made an exception for me. I was the only undergraduate there. But And the more I learned about it, the more fascinated I was about homeopathy. Not only the results, but the whole of its philosophical, metaphysical basis because it's talking about the vital force and something beyond the physical. Mm -hmm. And that fed my hunger for that under a quest for understanding of something further. And then I did another student elective because in, in the fourth year and the fifth year, we, we had to do practical work. So that was in, in Stranraer in the fifth year and the fourth year. I wanted to study Ayurveda in India, an introduction to Ayurveda. So I managed to arrange it as an Indian friend of mine. He was going to do conventional medicine, who was in my year, and we both went together. And I had a month going to the outpatients clinic in what then was Bombay, Mumbai now. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And uh, then I went up to Nadiad uh, in Gujarat to stay with Avaidia out in the wilds and see how they collected everything, uh, the various plants and how they made all the medications. So that was wonderful exposure to a completely different approach to healing and treatment. So that got incorporated because it, it, it does require a widening or a stretching of your worldview to start thinking in terms of energetics, the four elements and so on. So f- for me, during that formative time, that was really useful. So I came back and I was in my last year of medicine and I went to an alternative health exhibition and I met a herbalist by the name of Jane Ritter-Patrick. And she said, okay, come over for dinner and we'll compare Western herbs and Eastern herbs. And she said, oh, and by the way, I'm an astrologer. And so bring your natal details. Now, I didn't think much of it because for me, astrology was the silly sunshine columns that you see in the newspaper. Mm. They'll tell you on Wednesday night, one twelfth of the population is going to meet a tall, dark, handsome stranger. To me, that that doesn't make any sense at all. It's very tongue-in-cheek. And I thought astrology is associated with fortune-telling and Mm. things like that. So I I just wasn't interested. But I went along with it just to to be nice to her, as it were. And she had done my chart, and she sat me down, and she proceeded to give me a full chart analysis. And I almost fell off my chair because it was just so accurate. And I thought, this is amazing. This is a tool I need to learn. And then I started thinking, she gave me a a wonderful psychological interpretation, but there's no separation between body and mind. So on the physical level, that must apply as well. And she was writing a book on medical astrology at the time. So I thought that this is essential study for Mm -hmm. me, really. And if you think about it, two or 300 years ago, doctors, physicians had to have a working knowledge of astrology. I heard that on the podcast the other day. Somebody said that. I didn't know that. That's really cool. Mm. Or maybe it was and actually, do you know what? I think it was a podcast that you was, did that I listened it was to. My yeah. talk. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah. Now when you write a prescription and you write RX, and that's the abbreviation for radix or the natal chart. So yeah, that's look right. At the it natal was chart. you that I heard yes. say that. How cool. <laughs> Amazing. So what has happened over the last 30 odd years is that little by little, I've been weaving and trying to understand mm-hmm. the connection between the planets at the moment of birth, and the health and disease outcomes that people have. And it's fascinating. For those that don't know, a natal chart, it's like a Polaroid photo of the position of the solar, the position of the planets in the solar system at the time of your first breath. And so usually the chart is drawn in a circle around the ecliptic, which is basically like a ruler, cosmic ruler that tells you, gives you accurate measurement of where the planets are. And the planets can be seen as the main protagonists or the main actors in the cosmic drama. And the angular relationships between the planets are the plot in the drama. So some planets will get on well with others, some will conspire against others. And that gives you an idea of uh, the health of the person because the planets represent the fundamental energies that we have. Like the sun, for example, represents the quality 
of the vital force and the vigor of the vital force. The moon represents the flow of the vital force. And then you've got other planets like Mars, which represent your force, your ability to cause inflammation when it's required, just like Mars is known in the arts as the god of... And that's exactly what it does at physiological level. So Saturn tends to contract and make things rigid and is responsible for development of teeth, bones, and the whole structure of the body. But it can also, in pathological circumstances, lead to sclerosis and hardening and scar tissue and so on. So you start building up this picture where you can look at the chart, and very often you can see what your patient is telling you in terms of their medical biography. So for me, that has been absolutely fascinating. And even though I'm very busy, I try to make a little bit of time to just try and see what those correlations are. Mm. Eventually, I haven't got to the level of doing a real statistical analysis on it because just due to a lack of time, but I'm building up the connections and trying to understand things. Like, for example, in chronic fatigue syndrome, usually there's an aspect in the chart between the sun, which is your vital force, and Neptune is the planet that urges you or that describes the need for you to transcend yourself, to go beyond yourself, to go beyond your boundaries. So when there's a hard aspect between sun and Neptune, in a person there is a tendency to extend beyond boundaries and to leak out energy. Mm. So you could see how in chronic fatigue syndrome, that chronic leakage could lead to depletion. And usually there's an aspect to Saturn, which is restriction. So it's usually people that start off with a vital force that is rather restricted. So they don't have a huge capacity in their vital force. And on top of that, they have leakage. And more often than not, I do find that in the charts of people with chronic fatigue syndrome. And I would encourage your listeners to, to check that out. Because even if you don't have an accurate time of birth, you can still check the positions of the Sun, Saturn and Neptune are fairly accurate just by knowing your date of birth and doing what's called a flat chart based on that. So it's, fa- it's absolutely fascinating. It is so fascinating. I'm just like, I've got a billion questions. I'm just wondering which one to ask you first. But for example, so if you know this, are there, is that you can then use that information to know, okay, hey, I'm more susceptible to chronic fatigue. So I need to be really careful with what I take on, or there's this hardening of tissue. So I have to be careful with my diet or, you know, this, my, the planets are saying it's more likely to be inflammatory. So I need to be careful with what foods I eat or. Yes. Like for example, with people with chronic fatigue, I tell them, Think of a circle of energy. And if you work within the circle of energy, when you go to bed at night, you've got a little residual energy there, which can be used for maintenance and healing of tissues. Mm. If you go outside your circle of energy, it's like taking out an energy overdraft and the interest Mm. rate is very high. And what happens is that then your circle of energy shrinks further Mm. because you've got less and less vitality. But if you stay within your circle of energy, you become aware in your daily tasks what your circle of energy is and what the limits are, Mm. you will heal quicker 
and your circle of energy will grow, which means you'll be able to do more. So you can use it that way. That would be an explanation in practice of how to work with Neptune and Saturn in a practical way that has clinical relevance. And so you say knowing the date, the, the exact time of your birth is not that essential. Like you can still. It's very yeah. helpful. It gives you more information. Okay. You can still get an accurate position of the planets mm-hmm. for all the planets except the moon without knowing the time. And you can see the relation between the planets, therefore get some idea of what the physiological and pathological challenges are of the body. If you've got the time, you can then bring in houses and the angles of the chart. So it gives you a much more accurate idea of location of pathology and whether planets are on the angles, which give them gives them a much greater importance than if you didn't know they were on the angles. They become much more prominent. But you can still do quite a lot because the planets are in signs. So you've got planets and signs. And if the planets are the actors, the signs are the costumes that they wear. If you want, it's the colored lens that modifies the primal energy of the planets. To give you another example, Mars is the energy of focused energy, of inflammation. Mm. So, whereas the sun will reflect the general heat in the body, whether someone's chilly or warm-blooded and so on, Mars's specialty is to focus inflammation where there's an invasion in in order to protect the body. So Mars is focused energy. Mm. And if we go back to Neptune, which tends to dissipate things and confuses what your boundaries are, and therefore your idea of self and non-self, if they're in difficult aspect, you then have a situation where you have inflammation Mm. that could potentially be directed at self. So in autoimmune diseases, you usually have a, a hard aspect between Mars and Neptune. And I'd be very surprised if I see the charge of someone that has a good going autoimmune condition and they don't have a hard aspect between Mars and Neptune or the equivalent like Mars and Pisces, which is ruled by Neptune, a flavor of that combination of energies. That is so interesting. And then how do you use this in your practice, like this in, this information? Initially, I was very shy about it because it's bad enough. You destroy your street cred just by being <laughs> a path, especially medical circles. And then if you then put in that you're a medical astronomer, oh, then you're completely complete awful. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I started very tentatively. And basically, when I treated a patient, we got a good remedy, they got good results and had earned their trust. I would ask them for their chart and say, look, I'm doing this research. Would you like to help me so that I can see how your planetary positions correlate with your illness. Then over time, as I became more confident with it and I could see the correlations, it came to the point with difficult patients. Okay, I'm having a struggle here in understanding what the essence of the case is. Mm -hmm. Can I have a look at your chart to see if I can get some more information? And I remember this elderly man, such a kind, lovely person, with very bad rheumatoid arthritis. 
and I looked at his chart and he had a T-square between sun, moon and Mars. So basically they were in hard aspect. The sun, which is his essential self, the moon, which is his feelings, the em emotional life and Mars, which is the god of war. And I thought, this guy is not expressing his true nature. He's suppressing all his anger. So you could see how the rheumatoid arthritis would have developed because it's just suppressed anger. It's directed at self rather than for him to realize, okay, I've got a sensitive side, but I also have a bullshit side to me. And I really should express that or be more assertive. Mm. So it was too nice. So, so that showed it, but his Mars, his anger was so suppressed. It was completely off the radar. It was off the horizon. So it was only the chart that allowed me to see, okay, now we know what the problem is. Because a, a patient, e even if they're trying to be as honest as they can only tell you what's within their conscious mind, exactly. it's very difficult for them to tell you what's the subconscious problem that's leading to all the havoc. So that so, must be a huge advantage to be able to nudge a patient when they're ready and just maybe mention that, especially with yeah, very closed patients or people that are just not aware of what's actually behind the, their symptoms. So it allows you to ask questions, not even leading questions. Mm -hmm. Tell me about anger. When do you experience anger? What was it like as a child? What was your parents' reaction to anger? How did you grow up? What was your relationship to anger? How did you use it? How do you perceive anger? Do you perceive it as something good or bad? And that kind of then opens it up because it gets them, the person in touch with that energy. And it's the same with all the other planetary energies. You can use it as a tool to get the patient to get in touch with those energies. And then it's fascinating because you start seeing patterns and you can start seeing patterns, for example, with miasmatic loading in the chart. So Saturn, which has to do with restrictions and the limitations of time and place, that is classic. Then Neptune with all its fantasy and blurring of boundaries and overexpanding, that psychosis mm. together with Jupiter, which is an expansive energy. Then Uranus wants to break free. So what miasm would that be? Freedom, it, tuberculosis, yeah. tuberculosis, yes, tubercular And then Pluto intensifies and concentrates things. So that's the cancerinic or the cancer miasm. And very often, in fact, I don't think you would see it without it, that in cancer patients, there is a very strong Pluto in the chart, or at least a, a Pluto transit oh, at the time of the cancer. So are, yeah. are you saying like, my, so miasmatically, this you can look like, at the chart and you can tell uh, what's likely to be a predominant miasm that is really useful to know because i love yeah. using miasmatic remedies in clinics in the clinic when i'm mm. stuck with a case absolutely love it i've mm. had such good success with that but sometimes it can be a little bit tricky like for sometimes especially between tubercular and psychotic if i'm choosing between medirinum or tuberculum, mm. they can often mm -hmm. look quite similar so yes. that would be really helpful to know, just so you have something with a bit more certainty of, yep, yeah, it's definitely this one over the other. And then the patterns keep extending. Like if there's a lot of Mars, then you're thinking of competition, anger. Mm -hmm. It could point, maybe an animal remedy would be useful here. Um, or for example, if there's a lot of Neptune there, if you look at your Kier system, the magnolidae, the first column, they're not mm -hmm. quite in their bodies. With Neptune, it's very often that they're out there. They haven't really 
manifested. E even with the next column, the Hama melody, it's either here or there. So they're not quite here. Again, it's a boundaries issue. So if there's a very strong Neptune and the case looks like it could be a plant remedy. So mm. you can start looking at those two columns, for example. Oh, man, that's cool. It sounds like mm. actually this is something that should be taught in homeopathic. It should be. <laughs> but the problem is even after all these years, I've just scratched the surface. I could devote myself full time to this. And there, there's probably about a hundred years worth of correlating, especially with all the modern developments in homeopathy, of correlating everything. If you look at Shulton, the periodic table, at Yakir's work, at the Joshi's work, at Gandhi's work on the PEM and so on, the, all those, I'm sure we could correlate it. And the idea would be to get large number of patients, correlate the pathologies with the charts, do a statistical analysis of it, and get it really on a sound scientific basis. Anyone well, listening out there is up for the job? Get in yes. touch with Gabriel. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, because oh, I think that would that be would, really useful. That, that would be revolutionary. But it's nothing new because 300 years ago, even though they had a much more rudimentary understanding hmm. of science and medicine, they still used the chart and they still related it to the humors and the elements. Hmm. And that's still valid. As long as you understand when that when someone talks about fire, earth, air, and water, it's not literal. Mm. It's particular functions. Mm. Like water has to do with hydration in the body and os osmotic potential and movement of water. Fire has to do with rate of metabolism. Mm. Air has to do with movement and conduction and exchange processes, be it breathing, exchange of air, or nerve conduction, ex exchange of information. And earth has to do with structure. So when you start looking at it at that point of view, it's not as <clears throat> silly as it sounds like you've got fire and earth and air and water in your chart. You say that to scientists and, mm. and they'll think you're completely crazy because it, it goes beyond that. It's certain energetic principles that we are talking about. Wow. <laughs> I my mind is just completely blown. I'm just like, how do we just clone your brain and put it in all of us? <laughs> and then you do muscle testing as, right, as well, right? Yes. Yeah, that's something You're just going that for has... all the crazy things, Gabriel. Well, You're just like... I know, I mean... <laughs> <laughs> no, if, if you think about it, in conventional medicine, we are very much physical beings. Mm. The astrology has shown me without a doubt that there is, at the very least, even if there's no causation, there is synchronicity between what happens to us at internal level as well as external level and the position of the planets in the sky. How crazy is that? It's almost as crazy as someone saying, actually, if I get this substance and dilute it out of existence and give it to you, you're going to get better. <laughs> it's, it's completely counterintuitive. <laughs> yeah, it is. But... On the other hand, the scientific brain, bit of the brain comes in and say, okay, sounds absolutely crazy, but let's do some reality testing and see if that's really the case. If it's the case, then we need to go back to the drawing board and reconsider our metaphysical foundations. So there is this relationship. We are not as isolated as we think. We're not as airtight as we think. The whole time we're exchanging air and carbon dioxide with environment, water, 
we are exchanging all sorts of things, thoughts and feelings mm -hmm. with the environment and people around us, we are much, much more porous than we are. And if you look at the traditions of Ayurveda and Chinese medicine, we know there are energy flows through the body and they extend beyond the body. And then we've got all these energetic envelopes and chakras and so on. So we are much wider than we think we are. And I can't remember who it was, but they said, your body is within your soul. It's not your soul is within your body. So the yes. soul is a big, bigger envelope and your body is part of that. And the muscle testing came about because I went to a chiropractor for some back problems. She muscle tested me. And then I thought, well, this is very interesting. Let's see how this works. And before muscle testing particular vitamin or something, she would put her fingers there and the muscle would always go weak. And I thought, I wonder if we can use this in the clinic. So I would go through the whole procedure of selecting my remedy carefully. And if there was a choice or two of two or three remedies, I started muscle testing. So I would get the person to put their arm out. Very simple muscle testing. That There are very sophisticated techniques in applied kinesiology and so on. But I keep it simple because that tends to be, for me, more effective. So I would get the person to put their arm out. I would press with a constant pressure and see the, measure the resistance. Then I would touch them in the forehead and the arm would just give way. And then I would put a remedy in its plastic envelope on their lap and I would muscle test and lo and behold there were different levels of responses to the different remedies so if I had two remedies that on paper I could argue yeah the this one we can give and be very justified because this and this and the same with the other one muscle testing straight away made it very easy. And one, the person was so str strong, I could almost stand on their arm. And the other <laughs> one, they were very weak. What remedy am I going to give them? I'm going to give them the one that yeah. that they test strong, because if they test strong, it means their vital force is circulating much better than it was before. Mm, with that in the vital force, with, with that thing. Yes. And that's even without taking it, which is mm, great. Mm. And then that got a bit more refined in that you could point at certain organs or certain pains. Like if someone had a headache in here, I would get them to hold here. And invariably when you muscle test, it's weak because that area is out of balance. And then I would get them to hold that area and see if the remedies that were strong would also cater or deal with the particular presenting complaint because there are remedies that are good for your vital force in general but may, may not deal with the current complaint mm. yeah yeah and the vital force is intelligent as hahnemann says and it understands if i tell the patient look i'm <clears throat> just going to ask your body you don't have to worry about it i will point to your liver and we're going to ask about your liver and lo and behold, the body response, the vital force is very accommodating. <laughs> that is just absolutely incredible, Gabriel. I've got to admit, I've been resistant to doing muscle testing because I'm just like, oh, I'm not sure. 
But yeah, you've mm-hmm. sold me on that too. But you have to be very careful. Yeah. Because I do examples of muscle testing where I tell a patient, think of something very happy and you test them, they're really strong. Mm-hmm. Think of something very sad, the saddest thing in your life, and you test them, they're very weak. So the state of the patient when you're testing is very important. If they're distracted or you're thinking about something else, that can completely mess up the results. So it can be very fickle. It has to be used with a high degree of skepticism. And at the time, you've got to be focused. You've got to keep the patient focused. We are concentrating on this, nothing else. Mm. And then it can be very helpful. But I have to say from the scientific point of view, the results with muscle testing are not very reproducible Mm. in that if you keep retesting, somehow the vital force gets confused and the results don't tend to be as consistent. And that creates havoc if you want to put some sort of a scientific rigor to it. Mm. But it's I still find it very useful. If you keep it fresh and you go in with genuine with a genuine spirit of inquiry, you can still get very useful information. Mm. I remember a case of a patient. <clears throat> she had emotional problems and I it lent itself to the sensation method. So I was going into it and she was explaining, oh, yes, and when I get into these emotional troubles, I just feel like I'm floating up. And I took her further into it. And what was it like? It was like a balloon floating. And I took her further into the sensation method and said, no, there's lots of balloons and they're all moving in unison at the same time. I thought, oh, very interesting. We've got we've got a remedy here that could be perhaps a pack of something moving along. Mm-hmm. And he says, yes, it's in the air. And to cut a long story short, it was Ardia, Arda, Ardia Herodias, the great blue heron that she needed. And she did wonderfully on that. Oh, that must have been so satisfying. It it was great. It was great. (laughs) But it came to a point in the treatment where she had a bereavement Mm. and she was very distraught. And I thought, okay, do I come in with Nat Muir here? Because I think she fits all the Nat Muir criteria or do I stick with Herodia? And I didn't know what to do. And this was like at the start of muscle testing. And I muscle tested and that mirror was completely weak, even though it, it, well, indicated it fulfilled all that. Yes. Yeah. Uh-huh. And Herodias was still strong. So we stayed with the constitutional and it, it worked very well. And that was something that could have wrong footed me and sent me in a completely different direction. And it was very clear with muscle testing what the right road to go down was. So. That is very cool. And so what does a typical consultation look like with you? Do you throw a little bit of everything in or does it depend what the client need or do you just intuitively use whichever method you feel is best? Do you always use homeopathy? Um, Well, basically my label is homeopathic doctor. So people come and they expect homeopathy, which is fair enough. Mm -hmm. Uh, What I do is I give them an initial questionnaire before the consultation, which I study before the consultation just to get an idea of background and what they offer so Mm -hmm. far. And then in the consultation, I just go to where they lead to start with. Mm -hmm. So that allows for the flexibility that if they take you along a path that can allow for the sensation method, you just go with that. If you realize, no, it's just going to be purely factual. So you work on facts. And so I go with how the patient tells me it takes me or how the vital force is leading me. Mm -hmm. 
and then I will analyze it accordingly. This is, if it's a sensation method, you analyze it one way. More and more I'm, for other presentations that have a lot of modalities, mm. I'm using polarity analysis the, to me behind a fry, which even though it has 130 remedies and initially I thought, oh, that must be absolute rubbish. How can you restrict it to 130 remedies? I heard a presentation and it, it was very convincing. So I studied it and it is very convincing. Even with 130 odd remedies, you can do a hell of a lot. It's quite amazing, even for acute, in particular for acute. So Heiner Fry gets 75, 80% success rate using the polarity analysis That's method pretty good. With, with that restricted number of remedies. So again, we've got lots of tools in our toolbox and it's a question of selecting the right one for the right mm. job. Mm. I will also give advice on diet, but very restricted. Mm -hmm. Obviously, if say you've got a pulsatilla case with digestive problems and they aggravate on eggs and they aggravate on cream, well, you tell them, look, that's going to happen until you're out of the pulsatilla state. So avoid these. Yes. And Gabriel, you go and lecture and you teach other homeopaths and also doctors and all sorts of health practitioners about medical astrology. Well, whenever, well, hey. no, not about medical astrology, oh, okay. just about homeopathy. Yeah. So what sort well, of places do you go To the lecture? doctors, but I, I run courses in medical astrology. Mm -hmm. So before the pandemic, it would be a weekend course. So either people come to Glasgow or I would go down, I've been to Bournemouth, different places in the north of England and so on. And basically, I introduced the subject with lots of charts, video cases, so that we correlate what we see in the chart with the video, with what remedy you use from what family, why I gave that remedy. So you really weave it all together. Since the pandemic... I haven't been able to do it in person. And at the moment, I'm at the stage where all my material is in videos and I can't do it online because you can't guarantee confidentiality. Oh, of course, yeah. So at some point, I'm going to have to convert all that to paper cases to be able to do an online course. But since the pandemic, I've been so busy clinically that I just haven't had a look in. So but that's what I, what I hope that. to do. Yeah. Mm. But so that's what I would hope to do. In the future, I'd like to do an online course that's more accessible to people from other countries as well and build it up. I've got a two-day course, but I've got enough material probably for a fortnight course, so it will probably be modular, but it does take time to prepare it, and I'd like to prepare it. I'm quite conscientious really well, and that all takes time, so it's competing with time. Mm. It does. I've just done a small little half an hour course on YouTube and that took me like months. Yeah. <laughs> it yeah. took so long to put the material together and then just and, like and how if do you wanted to Yeah, if you want it to be good quality material yeah. and consistent and present it thinking from their point of view, how are you mm. going to introduce information so that they can digest it? Because it's a lot of information and it's mind blowing. It does alter your worldview as well. It needs to be done in ways that they don't get emotional and informational indigestion. Oh, well, sounds like that's going to happen no matter how much you like put it down because this has just been like a half an hour chat and I already feel like information overload, but still so fascinated at the same time. I, I, I will be honest with you. I'm too scared to go down the medical astrology track because I can see that I'm going to get hooked. It sounds like an endless topic like homeopathy. That's why I'm like, how do you do it? Because homeopathy is so vast. I feel I can't take anything else on. And then medical, medical astrology, astrology sounds just as vast. 
It's got the same depth of it. Yes, yeah, thought you, you, you were going to say that you were scared to go down medical astrology because if you look at your chart, you might get frightened of what you might see. Oh, yeah, that too. <laughs> but what I would say to that is that if you have an understanding of what those energies are, then you can work with them in a more creative way. Like, for example, of all the cases of breast cancer, there's a subset that I've seen that have hard aspects between Pluto, Mars, and the moon. The moon rules over the breasts. Yeah. So what I tell people is, if you find that you have difficult aspects in your chart like that, it doesn't mean you're going to get breast cancer, but it does mean that you have a strong tendency to suppress your emotions and particular your anger. So if you want to avoid any issues, look carefully at whether you're suppressing anger or not and how best you can be more assertive. Mm -hmm. So it has the potential for preventative medicine. So it's very easy to project all our subconscious fears onto the chart until we realize, actually, no, it's a tool. We have these energies, whether the energies get knotted up and land us in trouble or whether we use them skillfully is something that is within our remit. So it's a very empowering tool, not a disempowering tool. And that's another reason why I'm very much against telling the future, because in honesty, it depends on your level of consciousness and how you use those energies. And I don't think anything is absolutely 100% preordained. Mm. What genes you've landed with, what your constitution is like is predefined. But how you use that is a completely different matter. The analogy I use is you might be born with hammer energy. Okay, some with screwdriver energy, some with hammer energy. Okay, <laughs> but how you use that energy is entirely up to you. You can use it to smash someone's brains out, or you can use it to build a house. Mm. It's still the same hammer energy, but there's an element of free will there, and there's an element of using awareness and intelligence to try and make the best of whatever you've been given, however good or bad it is. And that's one of the main, the highest goals of medical astrology, mm. to be able to prevent and to be able to use the energies you have to reach your highest potential. I love the analogies that you give because I always find that is the way I've clearly got that picture in my mind now of the guy looking for the keys under the lamp and it's actually in the garden. Like when you paint those pictures, it's just gets cemented in your memory and makes it so much easier to remember you're a very good storyteller. <laughs> Thank you. It's fun. <laughs> it is. Gabriel, is there a last message that you want to leave our listeners with? And would you like to let them know how they can get in touch with you? I know you said you're so busy. You don't want to take on any more clients, but I just have a funny feeling you're going to be inundated with messages after this. Sorry about that in advance. No, that's fine. <laughs> no, that's absolutely fine. I have a website that has all the details. It's all the W's, homeopathy without the diphthong, H-O-M-E-O-pathy, hyphen glasgow.co.uk. And that's probably the easiest way. It has my mobile number as well. Um, Excellent. And or, any last... I'm also on Facebook. Yeah. Yes. Imagine that my hope is that the conventional medical and scientific areas or people that really at the moment hold all the resources and all the power mm. open their minds to the possibility 
of other forms of healing, which are very cost-effective, very useful, and don't have side effects or toxic effects, and that they open their minds and their hearts so that homeopathy become, regains its rightful mm. position of being a really useful tool. And we keep all the toxicity when we can't get a result with homeopathy, which is only a very small proportion of patients. And that would help to decrease iatrogenic or doctor-induced suffering, which is not unsubstantial. About the is fourth leading like cause a- of the world, I think. Yeah, well, yeah. Fourth, yeah, third or fourth, yeah, behind yeah. cancer and heart disease. The, there are gentler ways of approaching it, which are deceptively incredibly powerful that the body can really use and go into a very deep level. You have completely echoed my heart's wish and desire and my dreams and my hopes for where I see homeopathy. This that it gets the recognition that it deserves. And yeah, I'm I'm right there with you. (laughs) Thank you so much for today, Gabriel. I've so been looking forward to this for a long time and it was wonderful to speak with you. Thank you for blowing our minds and I'm sorry to our listeners for opening this whole big wormhole for you to go down. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. (laughs) It's been a pleasure. (laughs) Thanks.